Live from Earl Palmer Ministries, welcome to The Kindling's Muse, an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. And now, here's your host, Dick Starr. This is Kindling Muse, uh, recorded uh, in front of a live audience at Walker Ames uh, room in Kane Hall at University of Washington. And it's being prepared for a podcast. And the, the theme tonight is 1 Corinthians 13. And now, uh, let's welcome Earl Palmer, who's going to... <laughs> All right. Well, why is it that this book, 1 Corinthians 13, why is it so loved? And why is it such a treasured chapter in the New Testament? I'm going to suggest three reasons tonight. Uh, You always know I always have three reasons Sometimes four, but three reasons for sure. But I added, I want to suggest three reasons that come to my mind, but there are more for sure. This is an amazing chapter in uh, Paul's uh, liter- literature in, uh, in his First Corinthian letter. Probably may have, Paul may have written four letters to Corinth. Uh, some scholars actually can spot what they feel are four possible letters. We know that, like in the second letter, he says, about the, about the items which you wrote. So people had written to him, and then he answers. Now, we don't know what those questions were that he's answering in the second, uh, the second Corinthians letter, but we do know that there are tensions in Corinth, and there are tensions between Paul and the Corinthians, and yet Paul loves these people very much, and he spent two and a half years there in Corinth, you know, and in fact, at Corinth, uh, he was uh, put on a kind of trial, and the Roman, uh, the Roman uh, judge in Corinth uh, was a man named Gallio, who was the brother. We know a lot about him from, from uh, Suetonius and other Roman historians. He was the brother of Seneca. And Seneca, of course, was the... Uh, guardian in the early days of Nero when Nero was the emperor and then he was finally forced by Nero to commit suicide but Seneca was the great philosopher and I just read the journal of of biblical archaeology and there's speculation still alive that uh, wondering if Seneca ever uh, contacted Paul and they had if they ever wrote letters to each other or knew each other because Paul was imprisoned in Rome uh, during the Nero period and Paul's uh, contact with Gallio in Corinth was quite fortuitous because Gallio released Paul and would not uh, make any charges against him. And so that was one of his times in front of Roman justice in which it worked in his favor. And he was the brother of Seneca. Would it be possible that Gallio would have written to Seneca and tell him about this man, Paul, that gave an amazing talk in Athens and spent two years here in Corinth and has had a tremendous impact, maybe even on his own life. Who knows? But at any rate, he was there for two years plus. He knew the people in Corinth quite well. 
and he writes these magnificent letters to them. But they have a problem. And so I'm going to give you my three reasons as to why I think uh, the letter was written and why 1 Corinthians 13 is, is a treasured chapter. First, there is uh, a surprise beginning to the chapter. The chapter is beautifully written from a poetic standpoint in that it starts immediately with a great surprise. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a gong or a clanging cymbal. It's a surprising beginning to chapter 13. And that surprising beginning, it's bluntness in facing up to problems that they didn't know they had. And that's what's interesting, it seems to me, about the problems at Corinth. They didn't know the problem they had, which was their intoxication with power. Now, if you want a book that is contemporary to our own generation and to our own century, country after country, uh, political system after political system, it is present time, intoxication with power and all the kinds of power. And Paul has to grapple with that in the Corinthian letter. And when he finally gets to a great, uh, what I would call a, a nexus point, he writes this astounding chapter 13. And that, I think that's one of the reasons this chapter is so loved and treasured, is its startling and blunt beginning when Paul faces up with the Corinthians to a problem they didn't know they had. Because people who love power don't know it's a problem as long as they're thriving with it. The people underneath who are suffering from it know it's a problem, but not the people who are intoxicated with it. Power uh, has a way of creating its own uh, logic. It's, you know, the, the, the right of the jungle, the right of the, the, of the fittest, uh, the most powerful ones. If you're the most powerful, you love it. And it's a problem the Corinthians didn't know they had. And I think that is the reason the book is so, and I'm going to work with that in just a moment. Secondly, I think it is the centering middle part of the book. It's centered on the definition of one word, which makes it poetically powerful and gives it again a kind of poetic power that it, people love. There is a focusing in the center part of, the, uh, of this chapter 13, what I would call uh, the centering definition of one word. And then the third part is pastoral. And I think the book is loved because Paul calms us down in the third conclusion, in the conclusion. It's totally pastoral and totally wise as he calms us down after in the opening section bluntly facing us with the problem of power that we didn't think we had, and then this astounding definition of one word that becomes the key word, and then finally, a pastoral calming. It's a calm book. It's amazing. It starts out with a storm, but it, or lightning, but it ends calmly. And I think that, again, is the mark of a, of a great poem and the mark of a great uh, chapter. And that's why the book, is so loved. That's why young people want it read at their weddings. You'd think, why would you want something read at your wedding that starts with such a blustery, powerful, abrasive beginning? And yet you do. Here it is, 1 Corinthians 13. Well, uh, first let's look at the problem that they didn't know they had. You notice in the printed, the printed sheet that I gave you, I don't start 
First uh, Corinthians 13 with chapter 13, verse 1. I started with chapter 12, verse 31, and because that really is the beginning of this of this amazing chapter. It's 1 Corinthians 12, 31 is what really starts it. In chapter uh, 1, Paul introduced the, uh, of chapter 1 of Corinthians, he introduced the Corinthians, no, made no bones about it, in introducing them to Jesus Christ and who he is and the center of their faith. Uh, it, it's just beautiful how he does it. He says, you are not lacking in spiritual gifts as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end. This is chapter 1 now of, of of 1 Corinthians, so that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a strong Christocentric beginning to 1 Corinthians. So they know about Jesus Christ. They know about his love. In fact, they know something else in that opening first chapter where he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world and things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So he gave them an alert there that be careful of power or be careful of of thinking you're very powerful because uh, Jesus Christ, uh, the one that... that, uh, is the Lord of all, is the one who suffered and died on the cross in our behalf, and now we know his power. So he starts the book that way. Then he gets to chapter 12, and in chapter 12, he even begins that chapter with alerting them to a problem they don't know they have. Now concerning spiritual gifts, in the first chapter he mentioned it, they're very interested in spiritual giftedness, and that is another word for power. The giftedness is is a power word. Giftedness, I, uh, charisma, it is used in first century Greek language as a power word, to have charisma. We even use it that way in modern politics. A charismatic person, or charisma means you have power. It's kind of mysterious power sometimes that people can't always figure out, but it's there. So he says, I, now concerning spiritual giftedness, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. And then he, war- and he warns them. He says, when you were... When you were uh, not yet believers, when you were uh, uh, worshiping idols of your own, you were enticed and you were led astray to idols. They couldn't speak. And you were, you were intoxicated with them and you were led astray with, with an idolatrous fascination with spiritual gifts and an idolatrous fascination with power. And so he starts chapter 12 that way and says, but now I'm going to teach you about spiritual gifts. And chapter 12 is a great chapter on the body of Christ, on spiritual gifts. But throughout it, you can see that there is a problem, like when the hand says, I don't need you. And one part of the body says, I don't need you. I have my own. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm superior in strength to you and you're not. So it even has that in chapter 12. And uh, it, 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 oh, thanks. It indicates all these different kinds of spiritual giftednesses that people want. And then when he gets to the last of the chapter, he says this, and this I put on your text. But strive, by the way, the word strive there is the Greek word zeal, zealous. It means to have, the word zeal means to have extreme desire for, 
And so if you want to write that down, because you're going to see he's going to play on that word in just a minute. Uh, zeal means extreme desire for something. So, but strive, have, have desires and strong desire for the greater gifts. It's interesting. Now, he, he's almost bowing to their fascination with power, to the greater gifts. And I will now show you a still more excellent way. That's an interesting line because uh, the word that for show there is eti in Greek, which means but farther on, and sometimes it could be translated, farther on I will show you instead of just and now still I'll show you. But eti means further on, further on the road I'll show you, and then he uses the word for road, a, and now comes this powerful word. The word he uses now is uper, uper bolo. Uper bolo uh, means uper, uh, hyper. We talk about somebody being hyper. Hyper bolo. The bolo means to throw. And so that's why he's got a picture of a road and you're throwing something forward to show you something great ahead. So I'm going to show you a Hyperbolo. By the way, we get the English word hyperbole from that word. Hyperbolo. Hyperbole. And, ex and the RSV decided to translate that a more excellent, but it's the best, the best way. And now he's saying, I'm going to show you the best road. See, they're fascinated with power and fascinated with what would be the spiritual uh, gifts that would be the best gifts. And so Paul decides to, to give in to that, it looks like. He, it looks like he's giving in to their desire for, the, uh, for more power. And so, notice, so strive for the greater gift. And the greater here means more powerful, for the more powerful gift. And still, or eti, right now, down the road, further on, I will point to a hyperbole, a, I'll throw, I'll throw forward the greatest gift to you right now. And that's the way uh, chapter 13 begins. It has to begin with that uh, little preface. And now, suddenly, it changes. Up till now, he's talked about you and your, your gifts and the hand, and the, he used the, the parable of the body. You, if you're a hand, you cannot say, I don't need my eye. The eye cannot say, I don't need the hand. Uh, and he used all this you language. And now Paul makes the sudden shift, and that's that surprise. He shifts to himself. He uses himself as the butt of the joke. His, he, not they, he is accusing them of anything, which makes this a remarkable document when you think of it. He does not accuse them of having a false kind of desire for power. He accuses himself and uses all I language here in this opening uh, abrasive part. Listen to it. If I speak, and notice this is all powerful language. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels. And now here you have ecstasy, ecstasy power. I speak with tongues of angels and uh, uh, mortals and angels. But I, if I do not have, and now he introduces this word undefined. The word is undefined now, 
though they know what this word means because they heard it in the first chapter when he talked about the grace of God and the love of God. But now he just uses the word agape, the little Greek word for love, which is the word for the event love in the New Testament referring to the love of Christ. Uh, Love in the New Testament is is supremely seen as an event that happens. Uh, When Jesus Christ died on the cross, that's love. When he... uh, When he... uh, bears our sins, that's love. When he comes alongside of us, that's love. But now, he uses that little word and doesn't define it right now. Instead, he puts it in a poetic form. Notice, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. There's, there's sound, but it doesn't signify. It's sound, but it's, it's not pleasant, but it's there. So now I, I am now beginning to see a problem that I didn't realize was there. I thought that this sort of ecstasy power would be all wonderful and powerful, but now if it doesn't have this other word in it, it is a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have, now he moves to another. If I have prophetic powers, and now he does, uses the Greek word power, which everybody loves. And if I have prophetic powers, that's, that means teaching powers, prophesying powers and understand all mysteries now intellectual powers and all gnosis all knowledge and remember uh, uh, this fascination with knowledge is very big in the Greek world it actually started up and, and caused the what became one of the false movements at the end of the first century called Gnosticism. The fascination with secret knowledge that nobody else has. And there would be power if you had that secret knowledge. So if I had, that I understood, I now have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and have, and now he moves to faith. And if I have all faith, but this isn't just faith. It's faith to remove mountains. It's faith that has physical power in it. I can now make things happen. Sometimes politicians will say, I can do this. I have so much power. I can make this happen. And so now if I have faith so that I could remove mountains, and if I get, and now he uh, comes to acts of ethics and acts of caring about other people too. Here's now heroic acts that I do. And if I hand... And if I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Uh, and now he adds another little Greek word, ude, is the word for nothing there. I gain nothing, ude, nothing. Uh, look what he's done in this opening part. He's identifying a problem they didn't know they had, and uh, he's putting it in these blunt terms that uh, ecstasy power, physical power that can do things, uh, even sacrificial power that uh, cares for the poor and does all kinds of uh, 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 acts of, of kindness to others. But if I do all of this without this one word, love, which he has used there, he said, and then he uses this amazing word, ude, it's nothing. All right, having done that, he moves to the second part of the book. And the second part of the book is this uh, interesting, uh, what I called the centering uh, 
definition of one word. He devotes this whole second part to defining one word. Love. The first thing he says about love is macrothuma. Love is patient. By the way, the word patient there is quite interesting. Remember he ended the 12th chapter with the word zeal, which is intense desire. Intense desire for something, that's zeal. Religious zeal or zeal for making money is intense desire for it. And that's how he ends the 12th chapter. Have intense desire for the greater gifts. And now he says in the first of his definitions of love, he says love is... Now, the word for patient is a good word to learn. In Greek, the word for patience that is translated patient is macro, high, thuma. Thuma is the word for desire. And so macrothuma means desire that I restrain or desire that I hold back on. And that's patience. Notice it doesn't deny desire, but it says I'm holding back desire, macrothuma. Uh, runaway desire is called epithuma. That's sometimes translated lust in the New Testament. Epithuma is runaway desire. But macrothuma is desire that is being restrained. So I restrain my zeal, restrain my desire. So love restrains desire. It's patient. Love is kind. This is one of the words that Paul has in his gifts of the Holy Spirit in, in Galatians 5. It's one of the beautiful words there. It's, a, again, a love word, but it's the word that it means kind. But it's kind in the sense of being gentle. And sometimes translated, love is gentle. So that's the second word he uses. Love is not envious uh, or boastful or arrogant or rude. Now he has some negatives. What love is not? It's, it's not envious. And by the way, that is the word zeal again. It doesn't have a, uh, an excessive desire for itself and therefore uh, is... Uh, 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 you, you might say, looking out for vengeance against others who are, are challenging uh, what I want. So love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. And that, again, he once again uses the word zeal. He uses the same word that he used at the end of chapter 12, now two times in a negative way. Love is not uh, zealous for my own, my own self. I'm going to have to hold that tighter. Uh, love is not, is not zealous for my own, uh, my own way. It is not irritable. It's not resentful. So now he has more of these kinds of words. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. By the way, uh, that's where you take the word dikaios, which is a word for righteous, and put an A in front of it. It's not... It doesn't, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, in unrighteous doing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. Uh, this word bear, uh, stego in Greek, can also be translated covers. It covers all things, bears them. It can handle everything. It can handle all things. And 
and that's translated here, the RSV decided to translate stego, which, by the way, that word in its practical sense is the word in Greek for roof. The roof over a house is a stego. So uh, it, it can bear, it can cover. Love can cover. Uh, see, he's now becoming, uh, he's not saying what it's not. He's saying what it is. It, it rejoices in the truth. It, it, he, the, he ended with it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in truth. It bears all things. It covers things. It believes all things. Now, what he means by that is that love is able to surround. Uh, its faith can, is, is surrounds. Love believes uh, and trusts in a, in a broad and large way. It trusts in a large way. That's what the all things would mean there. Love trusts in a large way. And then hopes all in a large way. Also, he repeats the same idea. That hope uh, hopes in a large way. Faith, uh, love believes in a large way. Uh, you know, sometimes you say about it, people sometimes are intoxicated with power, you'll say how that person filled the room. We use that as a sort of a, a little way of describing someone. But what if you said about a person how he enlarges a room uh, by his presence or her presence, enlarges the room rather than fills the room with himself. And so that's now the way St. Paul is, is discussing love. Love has that enlarging effect. Notice he does it with the word faith, it's a faith that surrounds and, be, and believes the best around. With, uh, you know, it's like what you're believing the best uh, around someone and then hoping the best around and hoping around them. And then, then one of my very favorite words uh, in all the Paul vocabulary, the upomeno word now comes in, holds on and stays. Upomeno means to, it's the word for steadfast in Greek or the word for endure. It's translated both ways in the New Testament. And so love endures uh, all things. It stays. It holds on and surrounds. And so notice the way love now in this middle part is defined. It's defined in positive language and also in negatives. It's patient. It, in other words, it takes its time. It takes the long view. It's a kind of a moderate nature of love. And it's kind. It's gentle. That's, again, a moderate word. And then it's not envious. It's not overzealous. Zealous in the wrong way. It's not intensely desiring. It, and it's not boastful, which, again, is a, an arrogant word and, or rude does not insist in its own way, again using the word zealous in terms of myself, zealous for myself, and then those are negatives, and then uh, it doesn't rejoice in wrong, but rejoices in truth. It now looks for what is true and looks for what is light, and then, it, then these three interesting ones, it bears all things, it covers. It is able to support and cover uh, 
in a broad way uh, the people that, 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 it care, that you care about, you cover them and in a broad way, and then you, your faith surrounds them. You believe the best for them, and then you hope the best for them. You surround them with hope for, in, a, in a surrounding way, and then endures uh, all things, stays, holds on. Then love never ends. He moves now to this final calming part. This is going to be the calming part of, of, the, of the 1 Corinthians 13. Love never ends. It's interesting. He then takes on some of the things that maybe were confusing for the Corinthians and were a part of their power vocabulary. He says, as for prophecy, in other words, the great prophecies that were fascinating the Corinthians so much, uh, they will come to an end. And now, once again, he uses the word ude. They will come to an end. Uh, not the nothing side of ude, but the other side of ude. They come to a conclusion. As for tongues, they come to a conclusion. They cease. As for knowledge, it comes to an end. It ceases. It comes to its boundary. There's a boundary theology here now and then he explains for we only know in part and we only prophesy in part but when the complete and here he uses a great Greek word teleos when the fulfillment comes the complete comes the partial the part will come to an end and uh, and and that is, the, the, again, the ude language. It comes to a close. The parts uh, are closed in that sense. By the way, this interesting word that's used here uh, that explains the, 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 the sense of, of end is uh, it's, it is kata ergo. Erg is the word for work. And kata now with the ergo means it means the work is done the work is no longer needed uh, it's, it's sort of that view of the end the work is no longer needed it is done and so uh, that's the word that's used there to explain this cease it's come to a cease the knowledge is kata ergo it's come to its end it's ceasing it's no longer needed. Uh, and uh, then uh, Paul becomes autobiographical, he, he, like he did at the beginning. He started out, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, now he comes autobiographical again. And he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became an adult, I put an end, in other words, not that child is, is wrong, but it's, I no longer a child. That's what he means by this. I became, uh, my childness was now, uh, I have come to a conclusion of my childness now, for now I'm trying to figure it all out, he says. And so he now is back to his adulthood. He says, I was a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child, 
in that early period of my life and now that child period of my life is come to its conclusion, it's come to its fulfillment. For now we see in a mirror, and here uh, I'm sorry the RSV decides to use the word dimly in your, your text. Uh, they've all been struggling with this one word that's used here that is a, a fascinating Greek word because uh, he, uh, he says, for now we see in a mirror, and the Greek word that's used here is the word enigma. We see in the Greek word enigma, and it means riddle. Uh, and I guess they didn't figure they could put that in the English text, it would make sense to an English reader. We now see in the mirror a riddle. But that's what Paul decides to do with the Corinthians. It's a riddle. Uh, it's a riddle. We don't know all the answers. And so he does this for the entire chapter. All the stuff that's been said, he says, you know, all of this, it, this is in part, it's in part, some part of it was what I thought when I was a youngster. Other things I thought when I was on my power trip in the opening part of the book, of the opening part of chapter 13 when I was on my power uh, crusade. And, but now it's all come to its end. It's sort of petered out in a way. And, and now I'm here, Paul now as an adult, in the end of his of the 13th chapter saying now I look into a mirror but he's, he's taking it away from just I and making it we again we look into the mirror and we see in the mirror enigma and he wants the Corinthians to know that there's a kind of a modesty and that's why I said he kind of calms you down in the third chapter in the third uh, paragraph of this first Corinthians 13 he calms us down we now see in a mirror enigma, a riddle. We don't fully understand it. But that's not the last word of the 13th chapter. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part. See, he's not saying we don't know something. He is not making fun of the Corinthians and say you don't know anything. No, he's not doing that. But he's saying, notice, all the way along, uh, the first, what we know, if it doesn't have love in it, it's going to be nothing. But now what we know, even what we prophesy or what we teach, it's in part. It's not complete. It has its, it has its own validity, but it, it's, it needs to be completed. So he said, now we see in the mirror enigma. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part. In fact, he says only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And that, I'm so glad for that pure gospel that comes at the end of this passage. Uh, the, the God who made me knows me. And I'll be known as I'm fully known. And now the most famous uh, line of the, of the 13th chapter. And now faith, notice, he is saying throughout all of this, I've been talking to you about faith. I've been talking to you about hope. I've been talking to you about love. I want you to abide in all three of these. I want you to have faith, and I want it to be wide and expansive. 
I want you to have hope, and I want it to be broad. And so you can surround people with your hope. Notice this is the opposite of arrogance. It's the opposite of being tribal and having your tribe and everything is for me and for my group. There's an amazing breadth that Paul has woven into this third part. That's why I call it this calming pastoral part. So he said, I want you to have hope. I want you to have faith. I want you to have love. I want you to abide. The word abide means to live in. I want you to live in these three. And then the greatest of them is God's love. It's the love uh, that found us. It's the love that redeems us. It's the love that gives us faith. It's the love that gives us hope. And it's the love that enables us to be uh, stego, to cover others. It's, it's to have hope for others, to surround others and keep, keep us safe. And so uh, that's the greatest. Alex, introduce yourself because this is one of my favorite guys and he's going to talk to me for a while. Uh, well, thank you for that. And uh, I'm here to disappoint you after that introduction. <laughs> and um, so I, uh, my name's Alex Berzo and I am a PhD microbiologist. I got my PhD here at the University of Washington in 2010. And then I left the lab and went into journalism. Uh, I worked for a website called Real Clear Politics for six years. Uh, I was the science editor, so I actually started the website Real Clear Science. And then starting August 1st of this month, uh, I guess August 1st last month, I uh, joined the American Council on Science and Health, which is a 501c3 nonprofit, and I continue to ply my trade there as a science writer, and I write about biomedical science and debunk bad science. And I've been uh, part of Earl's theological dialogues and his small groups in various fashions for about eight years. Hey, wow. Well, uh, he's, uh, you know, just a uh, substitute for the great Dick Staub, and of course, I am too, <laughs> no, he's a great man, I'm so, uh, hey, let's just dialogue for a little bit, sure. and then you can take the mic around to the people too. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, first I wanted to start by saying I'm always impressed by your knowledge of the Greek language, because the, my knowledge of the Greek language begins and ends with my big fat Greek wedding. I don't know if you've ever seen, <laughs> have you ever seen that. Yes. How, how many of you have not seen that movie? Okay, so, okay, but most of you have seen it. Okay, it's one of the best movies ever. We all know kimono comes from the Greek. Yeah, right? that's what okay. he said. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask was what, what was going on in Corinth at the time that Paul wrote this letter? Because he said they had become very absorbed in power and in uh, manifesting the, the fruits of the Spirit. What led up to that in Corinth? Well, we aren't absolutely sure, but... Uh, there is uh, evidence from the letters that there was a uh, there was a a group of highly spiritual uh, sp spiritualized people that had created uh, 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 their own protocols that if you were really filled with spirit you would have total victory over illness especially and uh, so Paul is under attack we know about this from Second Corinthians because the faith healer at the Corinthian church. And see, Paul has now left Corinth and he's writing letters from other places to them and hearing about this, this sort of group that has become extremely empowered. And they, in order to empower their own movement, they've had to diminish Paul. Uh, 
In fact, at one point he says, what have I done that's made you my enemy, that you now treat me like an enemy? And because he, do, he doesn't see himself as their enemy. But evidently, that's another clue that the groups that have started realize they have to diminish Paul in order to make their own group thrive. And they have, they have struck upon a magic formula. They said that Paul had a thorn in the flesh, we know. We think it was, it, some people think it may have been epilepsy. Some people think it may have been cataracts in his eyes. They, he said it was hard for him to, for people to look at him. And, and he also, remember in one incident, uh, gets slapped by the, near the high priest because he didn't know the high priest was speaking when he uh, said something, you whited sepulcher, he said, and then they slapped him. He said, I, he said you, you said that to the high priest. Oh, I didn't know it was the high priest. He couldn't see that well. And we know that he had ammunitions always write his letters because in the Galatian letter he says, see with what large letters I write my, and you would have plucked your eyes out for me, he said. So we think he had eye problem and perhaps some others. But anyway, the faith healer at Corinth says, if he were truly spiritual, he would have victory over his illnesses. And since he does not have victory over his illnesses, he must have some un, uh, unconfessed sins. Uh, this sounds almost stuff that you can hear even in our own century. He must have something wrong with him. Uh, otherwise, he would, he would have victory over this. How and so Paul answers that. And the reason we know all this, Paul answers it in, in 2 Corinthians when he said, you know, I, I did have, the thorn in the, uh, have a thorn in my flesh, and I prayed three times. <laughs> They're saying, if you were really spiritual, you'd get rid of it. He said, well, I did pray three times. <laughs> three times I prayed to the, the Lord would remove that. And I love that sort of honesty of Paul, and that's when we one of the, get one of the greatest answers of Paul. Three times I prayed, and the Lord answered me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. And so then Paul says, okay, then I'll glorify, I'll glory in my weakness. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I have had um, conversations with uh, Pentecostals, and I, I have heard, you know, people say, well, you're not real Christian unless you speak in tongues. I've, I've heard denominations say that. How do Pentecostals and other denominations that place a focus on the manifestations of the Spirit, how do they respond to Paul's admonition in, in chapter 13? Well, I think uh, modern-day Pentecostalism is very grateful for St. Paul and grateful for what he says there at that very point. Uh, I think, and you know, the Pentecostal movement worldwide is huge, and it's, it's an amazing uh, movement of believing Christians. And I think one of the beautiful things that's happened in, in, in current... Uh, charismatic Christianity is a mellowing with regard to uh, the dangerous edges. When you, uh, when you treat special gifts that the Holy Spirit gives, like speaking in tongues, Paul does not deny speaking in tongues. In fact, at one point he says, I've spoken in more tongues than all of you. <laughs> uh, so he brags a little bit on that. But I'd rather say the six words in a language that can be understood than in a secret language. So he does make a little joke about it. But at any rate, uh, the, when, they, when it becomes a hard edge and that sign or gift becomes the sign that you have the Holy Spirit, then Paul would, di would diverge. And, and I'm grateful that modern Pentecostalism doesn't go that edge, to that edge anymore. They would not say, uh, they would treat a, a sign or they would treat a, a healing or they would treat uh, speaking in tongues, a mystical sign, as something they're grateful for. But it's a sign of God's assurance. But God can assure you a lot of different ways. 
and it is, uh, could be a sign of encouragement. The key is that it points you to Christ. It's Jesus Christ who is, uh, is the center of faith. And if you, are fill, if you know Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, with or without tongues, with or without healings, with or without, because many great Christians are not healed, and yet they have heroic Christian lives uh, of, of grace. So uh, I'm grateful for the, that that sort of hard edge, which you saw in the Corinthian letter, uh, was maybe uh, we, owe, we owe that softening to uh, modern charismatic Christianity carefully reading St. Paul and coming to love him. You had mentioned um, that this chapter is used a lot at, at weddings. My wife, when we were driving over here, said, I think we had this read at our wedding, and honestly, I can't remember. I, the only thing, I was so nervous, the only thing I remember is we were on a boat somewhere, and that's, that's about all I remember. And, um, and I, think, I, I think she said yes, and so she's, she's still here. And so my question is in chapter, in verse four, love is patient, love is kind, that is seemed to be plucked and taken out of context a little bit, right? Because there's an admonition at the beginning, and there's an admonition at the end. And we tend to focus on that love in the middle. And I'm, I'm wondering, is there any danger of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would warn against cheap grace? Uh -huh. That we pick the parts of the, of, of the chapter, we go, boy, I love this love part. This part about not being, you know, obsessed about the fruits of the Spirit, and this part about being a child and growing up, I don't like, eh, don't like that so much. I like the love part. Is there a concern of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace? Uh, well... No, a, the cheap grace could happen when love is turned into a theory or an idea. Uh, and that would be theoretical love. Or, uh, uh, but when love is seen as event, when it's seen as what God has done, and by the way, that's how Corinthians begins. Uh, chapter 1 is so vivid on the fact that uh, Jesus Christ and his... Uh, sacrifice on the cross in our behalf and his victory over death, that's the source of, of love and it's also the source of our faith. So Paul starts there and now in 1 Corinthians 13, he reminds them of that, of that love, uh, faith, hope, and love. That, uh, but if you turned love into a, an idea or turned it into a, a, something theoretical, then that, that's what Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer was worried in uh, Letters and Papers in Prison. He puts it this way, or no, in The Cost of Discipleship, he puts it this way. He says, uh, costly, uh, cheap grace is uh, redemption or, or grace taught as a general truth, not as a costly truth, not as a truth that is event. And therefore, since it's an event that happens, it needs an event from us. We need to have uh, a faith that uh, rejoices in truth. And notice all the practical, uh, you might say costly marks of faith and love that come in the third part, in the pastoral part, that love bears all things. It, it, it is patient. It takes the long view. It surrounds with hope. It surround, and that's surrounding the people in your life, which then is no longer... Uh, theoretical, it becomes concrete. Uh, one of the things that um, you and I have discussed many times uh, through Paul Lang's group and then through various groups is this uh, focus on certainty 
and having full certain knowledge of, of everything theological and how we think that that is problematic. Um, you know, I, I, uh, my wife is Catholic and um, I, I love telling this story because when I, when I first met my wife, uh, her parents asked, well, is, is, he, is he Catholic? Because they don't, they don't speak English, they live in Poland, they didn't know anything about me. And she said, well, no, he's not Catholic, but he's Christian. And there's silence. And they go, what does that mean? <laughs> right? and, and the idea is that we, you know, we all kind of live in our bubble where we have 100% truth and everybody else is wrong. Yeah. And Paul seems to be warning against that. He does. Saying, For oh, yeah. now we see in a mirror dimly or a riddle, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully. Yeah. What do you think, that the, how can the American church today apply what Paul is saying here? Wow. I, of course, I love that about the Corinthian letter, uh, and I love that about 1 Corinthians 13, is he faces up to his own ambiguity. He faces up to his own frailty, his own marginal ability to know. And, you know, that's important. It's important to realize that uh, faith in the Bible is, not, is never seen as absolute. Faith is always relative. I'm giving... Uh, as much of myself as I know to as much of Jesus Christ as I know. And I'm learning and growing. And that's why faith always has to go with sanctification, which means growing. I'm growing in grace as I grow in age. And I'm growing in knowledge as I grow in age. But notice he says, even after I put away childish things, I'm still growing. Uh, I'm, I'm no longer a child, but I'm still growing. And I know in part. And I love that that last line is such a protective line against fanaticism. It's a protective line against uh, narrow tribalism. And I think tribalism is one of the great dangers in the world today. That's that bubble thing. And I think Paul has given us a marvelously thoughtful and earthy and understandable protection against that in 1 Corinthians 13. You have a knowledge of Paul that I think would be rivaled only by Paul himself. <laughs> and, and, and so knowing, knowing him as well as you do, what would be your impression if Paul was here today and you were to ask him, what do you think about Hinduism, Buddhism? What would he say? Well, uh, I think... I think he would honor the fact that people are on journeys uh, and, uh, and that the journeys uh, sometimes raise the questions that help them discover uh, the Lord who finds us in our journey. See, the good news is that Jesus Christ finds us in our journey. And that means that uh, we'll take, uh, uh, let me give an example. Confucianism uh, in, in Asia, among the Asian uh, nations, uh, those that were raised in a strong diet of Confucianism found it easier to discover the, the, the gospel of the, of, of the New Testament because uh, they, were, they had already come a distance where they, it was easier for them to be found. And, and whereas some religious movements that are, that are more atheistic, that are more just in terms of a status of things, they have further to come. But yet, still, what they've still journeyed and what they've learned is not lost. It's a part of the, who they are and 
what I love about the, the Christian evangel and the Christian gospel is that when the gospel finds you, it heals and makes whole many of the parts of your journey which uh, were in an entirely different territory than maybe your, like in the case of you and your wife, the territory that she was in, the territory you were in, and the, the, the one gospel of Jesus Christ finds you both and enables you to uh, uh, respect and come to celebrate each other. One last question for you before we open it up to the audience. Why did Paul have to write a second letter? Well, as I said, some wonder if he wrote four letters to the Corinthians. So the Corinthian church, you know, we make a, I love Carl Barth's line that all the letters of the New Testament are written, no, no, he put it negatively, no letter in the New Testament is written apart from the problems of the church. In other words, if it weren't for problems, you wouldn't get these wonderful letters. So we should be grateful for Yodi and Syntyche, who had the big argument in Corinth. If they hadn't there, had their big argument, Paul may not have had to write a letter to the, to the Philippians. The Philippians, that was Yodi and Syntyche. Of course, we got even with them by not naming our children after Yodi and Syntyche. But they were argumentative women. And those argumentative women caused Paul to write a letter, one of the reasons he writes a letter to the to Philippians. And you know, he writes so many letters to the, to the Corinthians, if he wrote four, is because they were so cantankerous and they were, they were very powerful people. You know, it was, it's probably the wealthiest city in the Roman Empire because of their lucky uh, geographical location. And there were more human slaves in Corinth that were really in abject, uh, tyrannical slavehood. Than like in then there were in Ephesus and other, so it was a very cruel city in a way, and uh, and yet the gospel did it did come there and and it won some adherence, but also probably because of that intoxication with power, which is the very name of the game at Corinth, it infected the Corinthians church, just like we're we cannot help but be influenced by our culture, and yet the gospel is bigger than that. And I think that's why maybe he wrote four letters. But it's, you notice that in the Corinthian letter. It's bigger than culture. And that's why I love the Corinthian letters. They're bigger than culture. And yet they can make sense out of our culture. Thank you so much. Hey. Yeah, um, Earl, this is Scott Daly. Again, thank you for sharing your time with all of us here tonight. Um, you touched on it briefly, and it's just the concept, the tribalism that's going on, the us against them, the adversarial attitude that seems to be going on in today's society. We, I, at least I would love to hear your wisdom and how do we deal with it? How do we correct that attitude, et cetera? Of the tribalism? Yeah. Just, that, you know, just, I see it in, you know, current society today. That's, yeah. you know, the us against them, the adversarial attitudes that seem to be prevalent today. Yeah, I, uh, I, I really regret it. And, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the fear of, of the foreigner is very ancient. The fear of someone not in my tribe is, it goes back to Bedouin society, it goes, it's very ancient. And you know, it's, it's marvelous to me that the New Testament does war against it, in, in, in a, but it wars against it with love. And love is the only thing that can conquer tribal exclusive uh, fearfulness. 
And it, uh, I, I love the fact that in the, Paul's letter to the Romans, he talks about how we need to have love for the brother and love for your sister. And then he throws in a word that appears only in Romans. And he says, and I want you to have filio uh, zeno. And uh, zeno means foreigner, the love of the foreigner, the love of, your, of the neighbor that is stranger to you. You know, we talk about people being xenophobic. Xenophobia comes from the, the sphere of the stranger. And one of the most beautiful words in Romans 12 is when Paul includes that in his love litany. I want you to have love for the, one another, love for the family, and filio zeno, love of the, of the foreigner. And you know that, uh, and I really believe it's only love that can do it can take away that fear. And I, I think we owe, it to, uh, uh, we owe it to one another to, uh, to battle it in our own hearts and minds and just uh, avoid that. And by the way, notice how 1 Corinthians 13 does it routinely where he says love believes and surrounds with faith the ones that, that means people that are strangers to us. And, and the, the word uh, stego, it covers. It's like a house. It covers and, uh, and, and hopes. And all those are not put just for myself, but for, the, for those around. And, and Paul's, I think, trying to uh, see that happen in the Corinthian church. And so that's our challenge today. Yeah. Thank you. I'm Diane. Um, did this make a difference to the Corinthians? <laughs> did, did this letter make a difference? Yeah. Well, it sure did do an awful lot of couples that got married because I wonder if those young couples in the first century said, hey, I want this red at my wedding. But uh, So you ask, why would young couples want this red at their wedding? It has that sort of uh, strange, explosive beginning. And then the, the, dictionary, the dictionary part and then the, the calming, peaceful part. But why? Well, it's because... Maybe they want that realism that's in this 13th chapter. It's real. It's not just syrupy. Did you notice that? It uses the word ude, nothing. If, if, I, if I give my body to be burned and don't have love, it's nothing. It, it's, not, it's nothing. And, you know, young people need to have, know that uh, love is, is practical and real and it's realistic, but it also is, it's also sentimental in, in the sense that it's joyous and has, it has uh, that in, its, uh, in it too. So I, I, just, I, I think it's, who knows the impact it had, but the, the Corinthian letters are in the New Testament, so the early church uh, kept them in, and we're, gl we're glad of that too. Thank you. Uh, my name is Rick Kenny. Uh, worked in the mental health field for a long time, and I appreciate Paul's uh, developmental perspective. Here, uh, when I was a child, I acted like a child and so on, and then when I became an adult, um, I put away childish things. Um, in the work that I've done, uh, particularly working in the court system around divorce cases, I found that, uh, and, and particularly in my own life, uh, when, when I'm under stress, I don't do that well. Um, uh, I have great knowledge, and yet I, I'll fall apart under stress. 
And I've seen my clients do that also. So the faith, the hope, the love, uh, it, it's all very encouraging. I, I, I still see this as a great challenge. And, and I the word enigma and riddle actually answers my question. <laughs> so I, I wanted to share that. Thank you. Oh, the, the riddle idea helps you. Yes. Again, don't you love that? That's much better than I see in a mirror dimly. Uh, that would mean if I just squinted a little more, I'd see it better. No, uh, riddle. It, it means that I don't have everything figured out. Uh, but Jesus Christ does. He, he knows who I am. And I love that it ends on that note. I'll see face to face and I'll be known even as I am known. He knows me. And you know, that also comforts you when you're in doubt and comforts you when you're in, in distress. Uh, he's there too. And uh, he knows you and understands you. And I, and I just love that. That's why I call that calming effect of the third part where it pastorally calms you with that wonderful abide in these three. Abide is a very gentle word. It means make your, uh, settle down and make your home here. Make your home in this. Don't make your home in fear. Make your home in this. Faith, hope, love, and riddle. <laughs> yes, uh, and coming along on that too, uh, I think when I was a child we were compelled to uh, memorize uh, chapter 13, and I believe it was in the King James Version, and we talked about, I believe it says, I see through a glass darkly, is my recollection. And yet, in the revised version there, it talks about a mirror. And I'm kind of intrigued by that. I, I, I really appreciate what you said about Enigma because that helps a little bit. But we jump right to that part that says, I know in part. So we think, okay, I just know part of it. But knowing or seeing through a glass darkly is a little bit different kind of a version where some of us who have vision troubles can say, yeah, if I can pull away you know, the, the fuzz or the gauze, I can see it. So there's a little bit more a knowledge that goes beyond just knowing a little bit of it, and I'll know some more of it later. It's, I've got all parts of it. Where did this part about the mirror come in? Uh, you know, because a mirror is, I'm looking at myself. Yeah. And looking through a glass darkly means I'm seeing out there. Yeah, it, is the, it is the Greek word mirror. It's not, the, uh, which I suppose is the same as glass, but it is a mirror glass. And uh, uh, it, 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 the... I think the Revised Standard Version does do uh, one good thing for you there on 1 Corinthians 13. And that one I just printed up for you, it maybe didn't do it, but I'm, I'm looking at my, my copy, which is in, uh, my edition of uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And, oh yes, look at it does have in the bottom, they do footnote L for uh, mirror dimly, Greek riddle <laughs> they wanted to be sure that you knew that enigma is the word and uh, but they it's not in the main text because i guess people would say well what's that supposed to mean but you know that's what i like about it what's it supposed to mean <laughs> and you know it, does it comfort you to know that there's a whole lot that you have to ask well what's it supposed to mean well i'm i'm going to trust the lord in the midst of the journey i'll find out when i when i get to the end I, I'm going to find out, or I, I, I can't wait to find out. You know, I want to, you know, Telhead Chardin, the, the Roman Catholic priest who carried on a correspondence with Julian Huxley, the atheist, and Chardin was a paleontologist, and he said, 
the trouble with you, uh, they were good friends, so he could say this. Trouble with you is you're a humanist, and when you die, everything is all over. But as for me, Chardin said, when I die, I can't wait to continue my research on into eternity. Uh, I mean, I, and he was a paleontologist, so that would be more fun to carry that on. But, you know, uh, we, uh, we have that tremendous, uh, the gift that's been given to us of understanding, but it's in part. But it doesn't mean that uh, there isn't more to learn. And we're going to keep learning. And that's why I said, I think faith and sanctification should always, salvation and sanctification should always be put together. It's never a finished product. It's got to be a growing, a growing experience. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, one of the riddles we have is we have to be out by 8.30. It, well, yeah, so, that, that's the so University of Washington's we riddle. Have, uh, we have time for one comment and two questions, and that'll be it. So here's your... I'm a historian, and I'm also an antique dealer. And whenever I read this phrase, and I think glass and mirror were at one time synonyms for each other. When you looked in your glass, you were looking in your mirror. But the mirror that you were looking in in those days was like the old ones that we see today, where a lot of the silvering is gone, or it's changed over time. And it's not like the beautiful mirrors that we buy today. And you look in those mirrors, and you do see fragmentarily and darkly. And frequently, they were blown in glass. And so they were ripply. And you weren't seeing well. And you were only seeing in part. So you were and seeing dimly, a riddle in a sense. dimly. And that's what I think of when I yeah. see this phrase. I can just picture looking and not seeing what you want to see. Oh. And you know, I don't know about you, but I find comfort in that as a portrait of the journey of faith. Uh, there are a lot of baffling things, and yet we know enough that we trust the Lord of the journey. And the Lord of the journey is there with us in the midst of that journey. And in a sense, for Paul, that's good enough. Here's the last one. Um, of interest is uh, Gordon Thea, a Pentecostal scholar, wrote an article called The Disease of the Health and Wealth Gospel. And it appeared in Somebody's God magazine, and it had more mail than anything else, and it was 50-50. But, of course, that was maybe 20 years ago, and I think it, they've moved in a more positive direction. But what I see on another side of in the evangelical world, is a fascination with uh, techniques of spirituality. And can that be, in a sense, equal to tongues, and I, and I control God because I have all these good techniques? Uh, you know, uh, he, he was saying that spirituality, fascination with spirituality, is a kind of like a, a tongues fascination, too. It's a kind of a, the ecstatic part, the mystery part of, of the journey. And, yep. Hey, last question right here. Oh, right here. No pressure. Make it a good one. <laughs> this is a little off the subject, but it was touched on earlier. It's a comparative religion question. Have you ever um, thought very much about how these uh, Asian religions got started and people started adhering to them? And um, and and the uh, Muslim religion, Islam, um, you know, what what was what was there that made these religions catch hold? 
Well, you, you, you know, that's a huge, that's a huge subject uh, of, how, of how we are incurably religious, every one of us. And, of course, some religions are, uh, have a very ancient root system. Uh, Islam is not as ancient uh, as we are, really, because it's in, within the Christian era. Uh, but we, we're both Abrahamic, and we both look back to Abraham, so we have the same... Uh, we have a, the same root system. And then, uh, so different movements have different histories. But I think the same principle holds. From a, from a follower of Jesus standpoint, uh, and I like that better than talking about Christianity over against other religions. Christianity is, is, uh, a, a, sounds like a huge uh, institutional term. But following Jesus is really the key of what we are. We are followers of Jesus, and we have, he has found us as much as we found him. And that finding and is, is what makes us more modest about, uh, because we know that he can find uh, others in all kinds of uh, journeys that they're on. He can find, and he can resolve and make whole our lives. And, and that's what we're rejoicing in. Uh, and that's what St. Paul does in Second. First Corinthians 12, and that's why that passage can speak so broadly to so many religious uh, movements, too, because there is a kind of uh, wisdom on Paul's part in that generous spirit. Hey, we now have to stop, and uh, next month uh, we'll be back here again, and uh, we uh, hope to look forward to seeing you guys.